Okay, so welcome to this week's episode of the Python People podcast with me, Guy Bevington, uh, MD of True North Recruitment Group, where we share insights from technology leaders. And uh, this week, we're lucky enough to be chatting to Will Hayes. Um, Will, thank you very much for joining us today. How are you on this, uh, this wet, miserable Tuesday? How's, how's things going? Thank you very much for inviting me, Guy. Um, I'm very good. Uh, yeah, the rain was hammering against the window about half an hour ago, but it seems to have dried up now. Um, but yeah, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, better than snow, to be honest. I was just quite relieved that I could actually, because uh, I work up in, uh, I'm actually in the house at the moment because the internet's uh, being a bit interesting up there. Um, but I work in an office uh, at the end of the garden and uh, I'm just relieved that I can actually leave the house without fearing for my life and slipping over on the patio on the, uh, the sheet ice that was there. <laughs> so I'm, uh, yeah, I'm actually, I'll take the rain over the, over the snow. Um, but no, I'm good. I'm very good. Thanks, mate. Not too bad at all. Um, so, um, so, well, thank you uh, for being here. And uh, I guess just to kind of frame the episodes um, so, uh, you know, we, people want to know where we're going to go with this. Um, so firstly, by way of introduction, you are the, the head of engineering for um, Iwaka, um, a, uh, a fintech business, which I'm sure we'll, we'll go on to cover in a bit more detail. Um, and um, yeah, we, we obviously got chatting quite recently and we, I think we've both, both talked about what a, a roller coaster ride uh, the last year has been for, for many different reasons. Um, but just how really, you know, it has the, the pandemic, of course, it has impacted very heavily on lots of businesses and uh, really depending on your business model and what your business does uh, you know impacted either very adversely or also very favorably let's let's face it for quite a few businesses out there as well but it certainly gets everybody on their toes and uh, it's I think certainly from conversations I've been having with a lot of CEOs and, and MDs of businesses um, you know it's really made them think about um, you know their, their business model uh, on quite a fundamental level and the need potentially to change focus or, or pivot in some way, shape and form uh, to, to survive, I guess. And, and, you know, dare I say it, thrive uh, moving forward. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we thought, you know, we started talking about some interesting developments within Iwaka and how you personally navigated the last 12 months um, as, uh, as head of engineering. So we thought, let's get together and let's, let's do a podcast on it and show a bit of insight and, uh, and see if, uh, there's any kind of key threads and, and, and core themes that come out as a result of it. So, um, so I guess before we kind of get into all that, um, yeah, I'd like to invite you, if, if you'd be so kind, just to tell us a bit about yourself, um, your, your career uh, bio to date, and uh, yeah, we can go from there. Yeah, cool. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm uh, Will, Head of Engineering at Iwaka, which is a uh, fintech company that gives loans to small businesses. Um, I'm quite an unlikely person to have ended up working in tech. I mean, a lot of the people that I work with, they can sort of uh, trace their careers back to age 15, 16, building websites and sort of uh, thinking around. And you know, I kind of can also trace my interaction with technology back to my ICT GCSE uh, when I decided I absolutely didn't want anything to do with it at all whatsoever. <laughs> um, so I then embarked on an engineering degree, um, which I also wasn't a massive fan on, fan of, um, and um, wound up. I, I studied bioengineering in in. Um, I went to work for a um, small biotech company um, that was working on a blood gas analyzer product, and 
uh, my role there was to, uh, yeah, was sort of the first time I ended up get, sliding into tech after deciding that I wasn't going to was um, writing the algorithms that took uh, raw analyte readings from the sensors and translating those into the concentration of various different analytes in the uh, blood samples we were working on. Um, and yeah, from there, I moved over um, to Iwaka, where I started as a risk analyst. Um, so building the models that uh, we use to predict just about anything throughout the business. Um, and over time, I just kept feeling that the, um, the problems, the limitations we were running into were all to do with the tech. Um, it was all that if we had a better customer journey here and we were collecting data more effectively, then the models would be more effective. And um, when you're dealing in such a complex business area, it's very, very easy you know, to spend an awful lot of time sort of refining your model and bringing in more and more complex techniques. But actually what you need is to just get better data. So um, quite a few people from sort of the original risk team that I walk us live over to the tech side and that's kind of where it went. Fair enough. Fair enough. Cool. I'm always, I'm always intrigued by people's stories where they end up in technology <laughs> despite an open, uh, uh, you know, just, just, this level of interest in it to start off with. So, uh, so yeah, what, when did it, when did the, uh, the penny finally drop for you that, uh, well, I assume you're enjoying what you're doing now in terms of the world of technology, but when did you, after doing it, uh, I did a GCSE in, uh, in IT as well. I think we've got a, <laughs> so uh, I knew very early on that I probably wasn't going to be the career for me, but I uh, enjoy speaking to people in technology. Um, so um, yeah, when did you decide that it was it was definitely the right route for you? Yeah, so um, very very gradually. Um, it, you know, uh, when I first joined Iwaka, there were about seventy people, um, maybe sort of twenty across tech and analytics. So it was still very much a startup environment, and it was just natural that everyone migrated towards whatever problem they were solving at the time and there wasn't really a clear decision um, but I got really really stuck into um, a lot of projects around our CRM uh, we were building our own in-house CRM because the uh, so the data we were dealing with on customers the, the migration in and out of Salesforce was um, quite frustrating um, and over time I just sort of realized that I enjoyed the impact I was having in terms of building new products um, more than the sort of more nitty gritty side of, of uh, the analytics of you know, writing various pieces of, pieces of code and generating plots and investigating that way. Um, and I really liked the idea of building systems and processes that were sort of self-improving as opposed to trying to make those discrete um, uh, improvements sort of from one step to another myself. Mm. Um, so yeah, I um, started off with this with this project to get rid of our Salesforce integration, and um, ended up leading the project, and then sort of building a team around there, and from there went on to take over responsibility for sort of the entire platform we have and everything that we're doing. Fair enough. You must be doing something right then. <laughs> So, um, so I guess with the, uh, the, the sort of backdrop of the conversation and the topic uh, that we spoke about, I mean, how has the last 12 months of the pandemic, you know, how has that impacted things for Iwaka in a, in a, in a positive or a, or a negative light? And um, yeah, and how have you adapted to that over the course of the last, um, last 12 months? Yeah, so um, 
Yeah, um, I mean, that seems like the kind of question that people have been asking sort of at any time in the last nine months even, um, because it was sort of such a big thing that yeah, there's been very, very different phases of it. Um, the first few weeks for us were absolutely manic. Um, it's very rare in iWalkitech that we have um, lots of hard external deadlines. Uh, you know, we're very much about making sure that um, you know, we're, we're optimizing for the best, product, best possible product on kind of a three-year horizon is the kind of timeline we try and look at. And um, in terms of the actual features that we were supporting, we had a very, very rapid pivot. Um, uh, we normally focus much more on the acquisition and credit decisioning end, um, and you know the collections and um, restructuring side of the business is something that sort of naturally trails the acquisition side as, as the business grows. You know, if you suddenly acquire a load of customers, then you know that you're going to have to be handling servicing those loans sometime in the future. Um, so it was something that. Uh, we didn't do so much proactive work on. And then suddenly, obviously, uh, the lockdown happens um, and small businesses, obviously, you know, our entire, the entire purpose of, of IWACA is to solve cash flow issues for businesses. Um, and actually, small businesses are often running on incredibly small flows. So um, the moment you stop from trading instantly, which is not a scenario that anyone is really ready for, um, they immediately cannot make their next repayment. Um, so obviously, whilst you know, there's a lot of streams of work going on in the business, making sure that we've got the uh, correct arrangements from our lenders to make sure that we can pass on the forbearance that's necessary, uh, we've also got a massive technical and operational issue of um, understanding from all of our customers simultaneously um, what has happened to them what we need to do to support them through the pandemic and get their loans restructured in a way that is that fits in with all of our compliance and financial obligations. Um, so it, it was a bit of a shock to the system, not only having to immediately jump to remote work, um, but also a lot of developers who aren't used to crunch time having to uh, suddenly work around the clock, um, you know, Really being put in that situation where things were the wheels were really going to fall off if we didn't um, didn't get stuff done, and the team did fantastically. Uh, we put out a lot of um, a lot of new journeys where we could uh, collect these details and um, you know take that from the customer raising that there's an issue, sending them various new forms to uh, fill in and um, that's uh, by, uh, by various different uh, members of our uh, collection team, feeding the whole way through to obviously the portfolio analytics side of understanding exactly what what's uh, happening to our work as a business. Um, and I think that was really just down to the really really tight integration that our tech teams have got with with their various business areas. That um, when something like this comes up, like it's already in the back of the PM's mind. This is all. They're all conversations that have happened, um, and it's not suddenly needing to sit down with a developer and explain a whole new area of the business to them so that they can start getting to work. Yeah, yeah, sure. When you said PM there, I'm sure you meant project manager rather than prime minister. <laughs> so I don't think anybody could guess what was going on through his mind. Um, but, uh... I mean, if, 
Boris Johnson had known more about what we were going through. Um, I'm sure the, the initial government loan schemes would have uh, would have gone on stream a little bit faster. Yeah, very true, very true, absolutely. Uh, it's really interesting, isn't it? You have these conversations and you dig a little bit further under the hood about how you know the pandemic has altered people's uh, business model. Because I guess if you look at it from a, a blanket, you know, kind of aerial overview, you think in the black and white of it, well, iWalker helps cash flow for small businesses. Surely this is a you know, a time where you guys would absolutely, you know, business would be booming because there's a huge demand for your uh, for your services. But uh, like you said, there's there's so much that happens under the hood, isn't there, about any kind of mass event like this disrupts the status quo. Such a huge logistical undertaking, especially I can imagine when it comes to anything in the financial services space about restructuring loans and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's certainly not a uh, an easy situation to navigate. So it's great to hear that you've you have managed to navigate it so well and, and the team have kind of all come together and uh you know and save the day which is which is fantastic um and um i guess how did you quite interestingly uh from what you mentioned there that you know iwak has never particularly had huge deadlines like kind of business where it works tight deadlines how do you then as a manager and as a leader in technology how do you um adapt to that and how do you kind of lead and manage um i guess people in the team that have never been used to necessarily working in this way to this, this sort of real period of transition where there is a tight time frame there's a tight deadline is there anything you can share that um you know you sort of helped uh, essentially um on that journey um i mean i think so the first thing really um is to just avoid the situation as much as possible. Um, I'm all for having, um, you know, highly ambitious objectives in sort of the normal line of work, but having an absolute hard deadline, uh, I think, is always going to be um, damaging to the quality of the product you're you're uh, delivering. Um, what's what's going on is so complex that allowing yourself to be in a situation where something can come up at, at, at the last minute and you just need to shove it under a rug um, isn't, isn't going to be good for anyone in the uh, long run. Um, I think, um, you know, it's obviously something that we'll have to handle in our normal course of business more and more going forward. Um, we've got a massive emphasis right now on integrated finance um, and allowing partners to offer our products within their own platforms using our APIs. Um, so obviously we're having many more projects that are spanning um, not only across Iwaka, but uh, partner companies and, and, and uh, having to work quite closely with them. Um, when it happens, um, I think it'll probably be a theme for sort of a lot of my answers in this podcast. Is I, I really think it just comes down to ownership. Um, the more that the leader of the team and the people within that team understand and really, really feel that they own the problem um, and the solution, then... It's not something, you know, it's not something you're asking them to do. It's just an evolution of what their job has become. Um, and obviously, you can't allow it to go on forever. Uh, when these things happen, you need to sort of look at why this event of incredibly intense work happened and how you can restructure things afterwards um, to make sure it doesn't happen again. But, um, yeah. Yeah, there's not there's not time when these things kind of come to have sort of a conversation about who needs to pick up the pieces and and, and uh, stuff like that. So um, it's just about every team really believing in 
what what they're building and the services that that, that they're providing to the respective business area, um, and yeah, make sure that you don't leave it going on for too long and that you solve the fundamental issue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point, and uh, I think it, in a way, it's quite a nice indicator of probably what is a very you know, it was a very healthy culture within the team before that if people are prepared to, because one of the things I've been quite impressed with, you know, certainly dealing with people, you know, um, in, internal colleagues within True North since this whole situation has happened is that you do get a sense with, with good people, you know, that really bought into the, the mission and the journey. They, they, they want to help, you know, they want to take a level of ownership. They want to be playing a really influential role in, you know, helping the business through these kind of uh, tricky times. And I think um, it is a testament to those businesses that have, that have got a good culture where people do feel bought in, engaged, you know, part of what's being built. Um, because I'm sure, you know, in fact, I know for a fact there's been other businesses out there where they probably haven't had that culture. And obviously something like this comes along and totally blindsides everybody and it's a real disruption to the status quo and, and then will start falling off because, you know, people for the first time, you know, um, they maybe didn't necessarily have that level of ownership autonomy before. And now they're in a situation whereby you know everything's going crazy and they're not they're not sort of stepping up to the mark and, and delivering. So um, so yeah, I think that's a really good point around the, the ownership piece, and I think that's a really key uh, you know key point on on a lot of successful leadership and management really. Um, but is there anything you think uh, leaders should be aware of? If let's say you're a, you're an engineering manager in a business which is very heavily pivoting um you know due to the, the, the current market conditions um is there anything that you can sort of share um from your experiences that you should be aware of as a leader when asking people to um you know to pivot quite heavily from focus a to focus b um yeah i i think that's probably something that we struggle with a lot at iwaka this time around because with this sort of pivot in um, what our main objectives were, we, we very much, for reasons beyond our control, it came along from the lines of, um, we understood all the things that we've been aiming for before, that where the value horizon, where we'd actually be able to execute these from a business perspective suddenly jumped a year. Um, but it took a really, really long time to fill that gap with, well, actually what the new short-term objectives were. because after this initial sort of crisis point, um, we're obviously then in a situation where, um, you know, our core product due to the government guarantee schemes becomes um, far more difficult to sell in the uh, market. Um, the government-backed loans we were doing, the the uh, C-bill scheme, uh, which is for uh, loans of £50,000 and above, um, was a much more manual process um, that wouldn't benefit so much from automation because it was only going to be for a time limited amount of time anyway. Um, so there was this point immediately after this crazy sprint that we, we found ourselves very much flat-footed and thinking like, well, you know, actually, what's it all for? We've been building this platform that can do all these things and we were about to finally realized all the value of the stuff that we've been building over literally the last several years. Um, and, you know, the pandemic caused all of that in, 
into question. Um, so it's really, really important, I think, to repaint the vision of where this pivot is taking you as quickly as possible. And you then need to start that journey of getting people bought into it um, right from scratch. Um, and you have to buy into it yourself. Um, and it, it, it can take a very long time, especially if you were really attached to sort of the previous vision, um, to really come to terms with what's happened, what the next move is, um, and then you know recalibrate all of your assumptions about where uh, where the business is going, where your career is going, where everyone else in the team's career is going, um, to get everyone back up to that sort of level of pulling together and being really brought into the company mission. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I can imagine it's uh, it's as big a job for the, for the leadership as it is people in the team, isn't it? To kind of uh, be fully clear on exactly what it is you need to do, and I say also be really enthusiastic and passionate about it yourself. And you know, I can certainly see you know, how uh, how disheartening it can be, quite frankly, to have spent so much time building something that, you know, wait and see come through to fruition and, uh, you know, an event such as this happens and totally blindsides everybody. Um, but I guess the, you know, the, override, the overriding thing of good leadership, clearly, that you're displaying here is, you know, come, come rain or shine in a good market or a bad or whether you're pivoting or not, you clearly have the ability to um, lead engineers to build really quite, highly complex products um, and um, as a head of engineering is there uh, do you use particular frameworks or particular tools or uh, anything you can share around how you how you guide a team of engineers um, and, and technical professionals to to go about this process of building a highly complex technical product and, and, and ultimately delivering it yeah so um I mean, one of my greatest personal flaws is that, um, generally speaking, my approach to building things is pretty chaotic. Um, I, I don't have rigid structure, um, and it's not something that I'm particularly good at putting in place. So the most important thing to me is that my teams um, have autonomy to come up with their own processes and structures around the specific problem they're trying to solve. Um, and I think um, that can be expensive because lots of people are sort of thinking about the way to do things. You can't just join the company, pull a way of working off off the shelf and, and uh, get to work. Um, but it does avoid all of the really embarrassing moments when you sort of realize that someone's been a slave to a process. Um, they're doing something which if they just sort of step back and looked at the problem, they realized that they were sort of wasting their time on filling in this form or going through this um, this um, ceremony. Um, so I really encourage um, the leaders of all of the teams to really understand where they fit in with the business, what's important, and then you know take basic agile principles and examples of how different frameworks would implement them and come up with their own homebrewed version of something that suits exactly their problem, exactly the scale that we're at right now. Because, you know, I think one of one of the biggest uh, mistakes that people will make is to uh, look at how how Google or Facebook or uh, Apple are doing something um, when really what they have is a very carefully fine-tuned process to work at the scale that they're at. Mm. Um, when actually, you know. Uh, every time you take someone out 
out of the team, the communication problem becomes twice as easy. Um, you know, all of these processes really are for um, coping with throwing more and more people at a problem. And I think it's really, really important to acknowledge what level of scale you're at, what level of scale you anticipate being in the, in the next year, and not to go overboard on your ceremonies and processes so that you can properly tailor something to the people you've got and the team you've got. Um, and then, yeah, the next important thing is that um, the leaders of the team have got to feel fully responsible for not the um, not the products that they're shipping, but the degree to which they solve the business problems. So they need to be really, really tightly integrated. They need, you know, they're not um, letting someone else in the business uh, fully design something and then spit out a technical spec of I need a tool that does this. Uh, they need to be a partner in there, really helping to shape the business processes um, and converting them to our understanding of it which means that um, now from a tech team's perspective, we can be very, very confident in creating sort of new flows and new products without having to constantly go back to the business teams that are responsible for them because all the business requirements are encapsulated in the code. You don't have to interview someone to understand it. Um, you, know, you go and look at uh, what our platform needs to uh, make a credit decision and it's all there because everything is automated um, there's very, very explicit manual overrides that go into the process, but you don't need to suddenly go back to a credit analyst and say, so how do I get from application to loan? Um, because it's all, all there fully incorporated within, within our code base. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. And, uh, I mean, that's something that just from a, from a recruitment perspective, when we're speaking to candidates and, and understanding, you know, um, I guess qualifying them really for kind of relevance and suitability for roles. It is one of the key things that we will assess is how well does that person or how well have they demonstrated, you know, what they're doing and actually how it impacts on a, the wider business problem. Um, because we, we've, we've all, I'm sure, met those people that overtly passionate about technology, but it's it's technology for the sake of technology and and sort of tinkering around with the latest thing and actually is it the right solution? Is it the right thing for the business? Um, and so I think to have that innately within the, the culture, or I guess always at the mind, the back of the mind of, you know, engineers when, when building something, it, like say it's essentially to solve the business problem, I think is, is a very good point indeed of a, of a kind of healthy culture. Um, and um, I guess on that note, I mean, when, we, when we're speaking to um, engineers very often about their motivations and their sort of career aspirations, a lot of the time, a lot, a lot of people always think externally, you know, people move from company to company for, for more money. You know, they think, oh, well, they're leaving because they're getting an extra 10K on their, on their face or whatever. And, you know, more often than not, it, it really is, okay, of course, it's important and probably now even more so for people and um, to make sure they've got their, uh, their basis covered financially but you know the recurring themes that we see i guess there's, there's two kind of quite recurring themes that we see when we're speaking to engineers about you know why they might consider moving on to pastures new and one is is career development and progression you know and kind of feeling like they're they're growing and and being challenged and the other is um the culture engineering culture and the environment and um, so as a as a head of engineering, and I know the culture can be very different things to different people, but how do you um, how do you go about instilling a 
a great engineering culture um, that you think is kind of um, enriching and, and rewarding for engineers to work in? Yeah, I mean, first going back to your comment on sort of some people who are going for things, you know, tech for the sake of tech. Um, I think with the right lens and the right filter, that can actually be an excellent approach. Um, it's often someone who, you know, the best decisions are going to be made by someone who has a deep understanding of the technology and a deep understanding of, of, of uh, the business. And obviously, you're doing your best to pair the people who know the most about the business to, with the people who know the most about the uh, technology. But um, so many fantastic ideas come from the fact that someone say, well, actually, you know, we can do this or due to the way that we've built this, this seems like an obvious solution and then really pushing back against the business say, well, why? And that's where you get to sort of preserve those magic moments where someone comes in with, with, a, with a technical solution that is um, shifting the paradigm as opposed to solving the problem mm. and really changing the way everyone throughout the business thinks about it. Mm. Um, as for people moving on, um, to you know, sort of upgrade their role and and uh, their salary. Um, I think it's a disaster when that happens. Um, it's um, it's obviously not something that you can guarantee will never ever happen. Um, but obviously, you know, I myself and I walk here. I started nearly six years ago now on a, a very average graduate salary, um, and I've definitely had a lot of hard moments in sort of the last five years where I thought, well, actually, you know, um, I'm on a very narrow tech stack. Um, there's all sorts of ways that I could be um, expanding what I know if I just sort of jump uh, to another company, you know, should I go and do a stint in a consultancy or something like that to uh, broaden my skill set? And um, I've always stuck it out. Um, and I think it's paid off very, very well because uh, what I really needed to develop my career was to um, have a strong reputation and level of trust of the people around me. Um, and every time you jump companies, you're going to have to build that up from scratch. Um, if anyone in my teams um, wants to and is capable of securing a role elsewhere to do the next level up, I mean, we try to have quite loosely defined job roles anyway to sort of allow people to grow into things as it is. But if if they are able to get that job, they can clearly do that role at IWACA far better than they can do it anywhere else because they know all about IWACA and their systems and the people. Um, so if we're not able to give them that opportunity, um, clearly a huge amount of value is being wasted on both sides of the equation. Mm. So it's really, really important, really, really important to me that we can support people as their career develops. Um, your actual question was about uh, the attributes to look for when hiring. How you would go about instilling a great culture because it's, it's one of the things that say it's quite an ambiguous uh, thing to say I'm looking for a good culture and it, it is something that I, I do hear quite, quite often and I've got to drill down into that okay what does that actually mean to you because everybody's different isn't it but in terms of you know how you how, what do you feel represents a great engineering culture and, and how do you go about and I think you definitely touched on a few points there that are very apt um, clearly in terms of supporting people through their their career and development and I totally would agree with that and buy into that absolutely um, but is there anything else that you kind of feel that you um, you instill uh, in the team that to, to kind of build that that great culture for engineers yeah I mean I, I, 
I think the onboarding experience is um, very, very important there and very, very difficult to get right because um, you need to um, take someone, you know, sort of their first day, you want um, the pressure to be off, uh, you want them to be getting to know people, um, especially difficult when everyone's working remotely, um, and you want them to start picking up the information around the entire business. And then at some point in the sort of six months to one year mark, you, what, you need to have flicked the switch and said, well, actually, you're responsible for this. Like, you are the number one person who's going to make this happen. Um, this is the purpose of, of uh, your work. And um, I think we could be much, much better than we are um, at the way we bring people up uh, to speed. Um, and I think we could have, uh, could certainly have better documentation and, and things. Um, but it's also um, needs a really good relationship between the manager and the person who's being onboarded so that you can take them along that path at exactly the right pace for them. Um, and again, the most important thing of the culture is just ownership. Um, it's knowing that you're not just there to spit out tools that the business is asking for, um, but that you're fundamentally what is going to take the business to where it needs to go because you know, we're not just trying to give out small business loans. We're trying to break the practice of giving small business loans down to a science um, build up all of the services separately and then um, deliver this API that our partners can use to build whatever journey um, around business finance they want to into their own products. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think quite, quite a key theme that I think since you're running through you know, a lot of your um, um, approaches to leadership which I totally agree with you know is, is all about um, autonomy you know, and allowing people to take a level of ownership and I think that is ultimately how you get the how you get the best companies really is, is you know we are our greatest asset I mean even in, even in technology businesses where it's largely automated I still feel that most companies greatest asset is a people you know and you hire people for not necessarily doing a job, but what they can bring to the table. And, and I think the difference between people when they're, they're fully engaged versus when they're not, you know, is, is absolutely massive in terms of the output of what it means to the business. But I think the ability to get somebody to that point of engagement is, is massively around, you know, their, their ability to um, have that level of autonomy. And uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, I don't even heard of Dan Pink, but um, he's uh, kind of a, businessman, business psychologist, and he always talks about the three most important things that people are looking for are autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And yeah, I always try and have that very much in the back of my mind, um, you know, when again, I, I totally agree with you about the onboarding process. I think that's absolutely key as well. And uh, even more so in these times we live through now where everybody's pretty much being onboarded through <laughs> a, Zoom, a Zoom call, which is, uh, which is pretty crazy. But on that note, I mean, how have you, um, have you had to onboard somebody in this new guise and how have you found that in terms of, uh, you know, not necessarily being able to introduce somebody to a, an office, being sat at a desk and, you know, their, their environment or their, their perception of the business has kind of happened purely through remote calls. Uh, how have you managed that as a leader? Um, yeah, so we've not onboarded a huge number of people fully remotely. Um, we're just sort of kicking off our hiring again now. Um, but you know, in the sort of first lockdown when everyone was working flat out, um, you know, we cut the recruitment process because we simply didn't have time to manage that on our side. Um, 
and it's actually been really, really interesting watching the team mature without any new people coming in. Um, the uh, the amount of uh, productivity gain you get from you know not having to be picking new people uh, within the team. Um, we obviously did have a few new starters when the lockdown started, so people who'd been in in the office for you know one, two, three months, um, and yeah, it it was just really difficult. Um, you know, not only did we have to go remote, but um, it was um, people working absolutely flat out, and all of those um, uh, sort of informal moments you might have in the office that you work so hard to recreate and uh, cause to happen when you're working remotely, there was, there was just no time for any of that. Um, so it's a really sort of big focus now that we're getting back on our feet to pick those people back up, make sure that we're, um, that everyone's really happy in their role and um, they know exactly what's expected of them and how they're going to get to uh, where they need to go. Um, but uh, yeah, obviously making this stuff happen uh, while working remotely is, Something that I think, as an industry, we're going to have to get much, much better at because um, I, I guess no one will be able to say for sure until COVID is firmly behind us. Um, but a lot of people seem to be assuming um, that you know I, I don't know if there'll be some sort of critical mass of uh, developers wanting to work fully remotely. That means that you can't really run a tech company without allowing at, at least for uh, some remote developers. Uh, we're certainly looking at Iwaka. Um, but giving people as much flexibility as possible and uh, being creative about the ways that we do get people to meet face-to-face. -face. Um, but it's all uh, very, very complex, you know, sort of making sure that uh, all the people who like being in, 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 in uh, the office, of which I am one, um, don't lose out and continue to be able to have sort of the work experience they want to while also allowing people to do all the things that are possible with a fully remote lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, totally. I um, I, I saw a piece about uh, Spotify, uh, you know, kind of four days ago, announced that um, they post pandemic will allow all their employees to choose wherever they want to work from. You know, um, and I think that's the point. It's I think a lot of people are worried about, you know, well, I don't really want a fully remote working environment. And, um, you know, I certainly don't either. I, I massively enjoy interaction, face-to-face -face interaction with colleagues and customers, um, you know, and, and I can think of anything worse than being fully remote the whole time. But I think everybody's different. Everyone's got a different set of circumstances. And it's just about creating an environment that's inclusive, I guess. But it's that kind of hybrid, isn't it, between giving people flexibility should they need it, but also a place where, you know, I think you can never fully replace the magic, you know, the spark that you get of having like-minded people, you know, driven towards a common goal, sat together in a room, bouncing ideas off each other. I just think it's, it's a very difficult thing to replicate. But yeah, certainly the onboarding process is, it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be a really fine art, I think, as to how companies get that right in, you know, in sort of impressing the culture of the business upon individuals when it's just done via a, via a Zoom call versus actually going in and seeing the, the whites of people's eyes so um yeah interesting times uh, ahead on that front absolutely and and i guess just to sort of close close off uh, well for the last question i'd like to ask around you know i walk has clearly you know played a hugely influential role in this pivoting process that's had to happen as a result of the 
the pandemic. But how are you? How are you feeling about the the landscape and the kind of world of fintech in in general um, at the moment as we uh, you know sort of enter further into twenty twenty one? How are you feeling about it? All? Um, so I, I'm, yeah, I'm super excited. Um, there's lots of new ideas for products um, that have maybe not been had, but have uh, become much, much more important as we've seen the effect of the pandemic on on uh, various uh, small businesses. Um, lots of focus on you know, what happens, um, certainly just, just from a lending perspective, when something like a lockdown happens, um, how do you give businesses the the cash flow liquidity they need without it being a noose around their neck if things suddenly go wrong. Um, so uh, lots of focus, um, you know, on our on B two B payments. Um, so we've launched iWalkerPay uh, last year, which um, allows customers to, which allows um, businesses that are selling to other businesses um, to offer payment terms to their customers. Um, so I mean. During the uh, lockdown, one of the things that causes the money to stop flowing instantly is that everyone stops paying their invoices because they can't afford to. Um, and this, you know, means that you knock out. But, um, so um, there's all sorts of solutions to making sure that you're correctly adding liquidity to the process in in uh, the right the right way. Um, and then also, um, you know, thinking about more creative ways to uh, manage repayment schedules for loans so that if the business isn't earning, uh, they're not due any, any uh, repayments, which is obviously what you have to do anyway. I mean, you know, if someone owes you a lot of money and they can't pay, that's, that's your problem, not theirs, really. Um, so looking at how we can implement revenue-based repayments, um, even though a business might have multiple streams of revenue and uh, using technologies like open banking uh, to understand exactly what, what the nature and state of the business is and managing uh, that flow. Um, so I, I think, um, yeah, there's loads of really, really exciting, exciting things just in that small region of FinTech um, that, are, um, that have really been given a kickstart due to the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm glad you're kind of landing on that side of the glass half full uh, side of things. And I'm, I'm saying that I think change, you know, inherently as people, we're, we're not, uh, we're never programmed to love change, are we? To sort of go away from the status quo and, and our, our kind of day-to-day lives and, and business models and all these things to be affected. But yeah, I am a firm believer of, of times of change present huge opportunities. And I guess that's the way that, you have to look at it really because there's no other way of looking at it um and um i think those businesses that that see it that way like glass half full and there's there's always scope for um you know improving on things and uh, and pivoting in, in a positive way i think we're the ones that will that will survive and thrive and and those unfortunately that aren't able to navigate a path through and find their way out of the woods and, and be able to successfully pivot <clears throat> with that opportunity you know i guess guess won't uh, fundamentally but uh but fingers crossed, you know, Walker continues to go from strength to strength. It certainly seems like there's a, uh, uh, you know, strong, strong leader at the ship of the engineering wheel. And um, yeah, you know, well done on everything you've managed to achieve over the last 12 months. And it's uh, you know, great kudos to you and, and the team. And uh, just seeing your, uh, your friend in the background there and uh, chilling out. Who's that? 
That is Tom, um, who is, yeah, having a stretch. Good old there Tom. was a head somewhere. My, uh, I've got a little cabochon who's uh, asleep on the sofa in the other room at the moment. But uh, yeah, she, she normally has a, a habit of barking halfway through a podcast. So thankfully, she's given me a break today. <laughs> I suppose you don't have that problem as much with the cat, do you? Uh, but uh, no, it's been uh, it's been fantastic catching up. Uh, well, thank you very much for your time, and really, really uh, fascinating to, to speak to you. And uh, yeah, I wish you all the very best for the future. I'll be following uh, Iwaka's uh, progress intently, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll have a catch up again in uh, in the not too distant future, I'm sure. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Guy. Take care. Bye for now. Bye.